This is Mumia Abu-Jamal, and you're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 Santa Barbara. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. Good morning, everyone. This is Eric Mann. I'm the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. Today, we needed to pass by the headlines because we have an interview with the amazing Keith Lamar, who's been in prison since 1989. And by 1993, when the prisoners rose up at the Lucasville prison in Ohio, he was absolutely falsely charged with killing either inmates or a guard as part of a complete frame-up. He's now on death row with, if we don't stop it, a November 16th execution date by the murderous state of Ohio. Channing Martinez and Julian Lamb and I, along with Amy Gudishev, spent an hour with Keith and then two or three hours before and afterwards to try to build a movement for this amazing man. So you'll hear my conversation. Please listen to all the requests, including financial support for his last appeal. And please write to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines so we can develop a sustained movement to free and exonerate Keith Lamar. With that, let's listen to this amazing brother. Hi, Keith. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. Keith, hi. Keith, this is Eric Mann. I'm the director of the Labor Community Strategy Center. Uh, I'm here with Channing Martinez and with Julian Lamb and, of course, with Amy. You're going to be on this show. This is the show, everybody. It's called Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. So we're on every Tuesday at 8 a.m., on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming live on kpfk.org all over the world into your life, Keith, as well. You know, Amy, of course, Amy Goodage has done a great job of briefing me, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I just really briefly, I mean, I just want to hear your voice, but just to tell you, I was in prison for a year and a half for demonstrations against the war, and then three and a half more years probation. You know what that's like, where they can put you back at any time. Yeah. Only enough to know I have some sense, nothing compared to what you're going through. So why don't you tell our listeners more about your present and future, where your mind is right now, and we can go back and do the backstory, you know, but the, I think the present and future, I'm sure, is where you're living. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly right. Um, as you may have learned from Amy, um, I'm scheduled to be executed in November, November the 16th, in fact. Um, and we are right now trying to elevate the campaign, trying to um, bring awareness to my situation, um, trying to uh, um, educate people about what happened to me in 1995, which is the year I was sentenced to death for crimes I didn't commit. Um, and I've been saying it from the beginning. I mean, one of the things that I'm, one of the hardest things I've been trying to do, trying to get people to wrap their mind around the fact that you could be sentenced to death in this country and you're innocent. 
and that the people right. that sentence you to death know your innocence. Because they the ones who have held back the evidence to prove your innocence. And it's, it's, it's almost as if what I'm trying to do in, in, in trying to convince people that I'm trying to convince them that the sun doesn't rise in the morning. Because all of us have been, and include myself, uh, you know, part of the reason why I demanded a trial because I believe in justice. You know, all of us grow up here in America thinking my country, Timothy, or raising our, you know, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I did that too, even though I grew up in poverty, even though I grew up in the ghetto. You know, I was still equally indoctrinated. So in 1995, when, you know, the state wanted me to plead guilty to crimes I didn't commit, I demanded a trial. Right. And, um, that didn't go, you know, how I expected, but, you know, that was a part of my education, something that I had to learn the hard way about, you know, reality in this country. So, you know, I'm just going around, I'm educating people. I have a book club called Native Sons Literacy Project, which started as a way to interact with at-risk youth, quote unquote. I don't particularly like that name, but, you know, uh, um, I, I go into the juvenile places in the beginning, at least. And, um, talk to young people about the traps that have been set for them and try to get them to kind of see and understand how to navigate. Um, but part of that, you know, difficult assignment is trying to convince kids not to be kids. To think, you know, above your, you know, your, your age and your right. predicament and try to look into the future, you know. But that's what books, you know, allow you to do, you know, fiction allow you to imagine, you know, and, you know, that's one of the things that I, that I was trying to do. And so it has, uh, you know, developed into a broader um, thing where I'm reading with college students, um, professors, so on and so forth. I've even taught several college classes and whatnot. And so that's the thing that I'm doing, Eric. I'm going around, I'm educating people about the criminal justice system. And lo and behold, the people who put me here 30 years ago, they didn't just do this to Keith Lamar. This is something that they did to, to, to a lot of people, a lot of black people in particular. And all those cases are now coming to, to light. You know, a guy here in Ohio named um, Elwood Jones was recently granted a new trial because the same people who put me here did the same thing to him. Right. And a few weeks ago, another person who was, who was in for 12 years ran into the same thing. And so now I'm not the, you know, the lone voice in the wilderness telling the story about these prosecutors. And these prosecutors in Cincinnati are really indicative of how the whole system works. Right. But this is, you know, something that, you know, so now, you know, um, I'm starting to, to, to kind of um, gain some ground in, 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 in telling the story. But, you know, in, in terms of my own particular case, there's a documentary um, um, in the works, there's a podcast in the works, there's an album that we've been doing and so I'm focused daily on, on, and I'm having these conversations with people like yourself. And this is a day-to-day -day grind, you know, a day-to-day -day thing. And this is how, and I was telling Amy earlier, I was speaking to her earlier. I said, you know, Amy, even with everything that we've been doing, and it's a lot. And she's been on the front line since the very beginning. You know, my campaign started off with just she and I sitting in the business room imagining you know, what could happen if we really, really, you know, try to do something righteous with our lives. 
you know, I was saying it started with you and Amy, and I started the strategy center in a little underground office with no debt, two desks and no windows. Uh, if you get two great organizers together, I mean, you guys got right now the most amazing national yeah. and international network. Uh, I'm in awe. I just wanted to read a couple of sentences, Keith, if that's okay, from your story, just yeah, to say fine. with no elaboration. Uprising in 1993, where you did nothing, solitary confinement and death row, contaminated evidence, paid jailhouse informants, false narrative, withholding of evidence, suppressed confession of actual perpetrator, remote Ohio community, all-white jury, black juries were dismissed, and this welcome to America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's basically a blueprint. You know, um, it happens um, to people every day in this country, poor people, particularly people, brown and black people, um, of course. Um, yes, you know, um, it's just something that um, uh, happens that's prevalent in this um, so-called criminal justice system. Yeah, definitely. Keith, tell me how your day goes every day. Like, what's your routine? How do you go through it? What do you think about? What do you do? Well, I'm in prison, uh, obviously, and you know, there's no like cooperation. Like at any moment, without notice, it can get you know, very loud in here, where we won't even be able to hear each other. Right. So you know, during those times, it's hard to write. It's hard to to read. And so I try to go to sleep. You know. By at nine o'clock, so I could wake up at two, three o'clock in the morning when it's very quiet. That's where I do most of my thinking and reading and my uh, writing. And of course, you know, I'm on the phone probably four or five hours, four or five hours a day, um, talking to people, having conversations, um, and with Amy. You know, Amy's also has as a school teacher, so she works, and so we try to, you know, that book condemned that I wrote. Right. I wrote that book in eight months, but it was written by Amy transcribing the book over the phone because we had pictures of writing pages, sent them through the mail, but those pages never made it to her house. And so, and, and, and not to, you know, keep dealing with that, I just, you know, would recite the, uh, uh, the pages over the phone and she would transcribe them every morning before she went to work as a school teacher. And, and, and that's how the book in eight months, you know, the book condemned was, um, uh, uh, was you know, finished. But um, yeah, I get up early in the morning, man. I try to make the most out of those few quiet hours that I'm um, allotted and um, try to get as much work as I possibly can. But I have to meditate, I have to work out, I have to, you know, stick to this real rigid routine in order just to, you know, to stay online. But, you know, getting back to what I was saying earlier, I told Amy, I said, even with everything we've done, Amy, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to prevail. But I want her to, I say that not to be discouraging because I'm not doing this or not mainly the way I live my life is to, you know, to bend things to my will. I'm, this is, I'm living. And so that's what I call everything, getting up in the morning, you know, doing everything. That's living to me. And, you know, I'm, I, and I just wanted her, you know, I was thanking her just for being such a good friend to me in my just to let her know because, 
you know, a lot of people think, you know, especially her, I'm sure she would take it personal if I, you know, if this thing don't turn out the way we hope, you know, but I just want her to know and remind her, you know, at different points along the way that, listen, you know, just having a friend like you is like hitting the lottery. You know, yes. just meeting somebody like you on this earth is like winning something, you know, really, really big. You know, what I mean? and, and I think that's something that we have to do and, you know, kind of acknowledge amongst ourselves with each other. Because we're fighting something that's really, really bigger than us. It's a monstrosity, you know, the American uh, government. And, you know, it's other people are engaged in similar battles. And we have to, you know, uh, stop sometimes in the heat of things to acknowledge each other's presence and our contributions. Well, I think gratitude is so important, and you both hit the lottery. You both yeah. did. Tell us a little about your workout. You know, when I was in prison, uh, I read Soledad Brother by George Jackson, and I'm going to get you a copy of my book, Comrade George, Investigation into the Life, Political Thought, and Assassination of George Jackson. But he used to talk about it doing a 1,000 fingertip push-ups in his cell. I got up to about 100, uh, that was, but I used to, you know, the working out, tell us about the working out in yourself. I mean, George Jackson, um, has been a big influence in my life as well. I may have even read the book, you know, uh, the name sounds familiar, but yeah, George Jackson, I never get up to a thousand fingertip push-ups, but I have, um, um, done thousands of push-ups in, in a single session before. I'm 53 years old now, I'm 34 years inside, so... I'm not as working out as vigorously as I was when I was in my 20s. Um, not even so much focused on the strength so much as the peace. I do yoga, I right. do yoga. And so I'm stretching, I'm trying, because I'm sleeping on this bed, this concrete slab for the past three decades. And so it has uh, wrought a lot of damage to my body. And so I'm just stretching and trying to, um, let's just say, you know, I do get my life back and I am one day walking on the other side of the situation. I'd like to be able to enjoy whatever life that would be that, that is left for me. And so I take care of myself as best I can. Um, I run, I land a day, um, you know, um, I try to eat as best as I possibly can. So, you know, I'm being honest, you know, I'm not as urgent as I, I probably should be in that area because you don't have a lot of pleasures in here. And so, you know, once or twice a year, my family and friends send me a food parcel. There's a lot of, you know, things in here that a 50-year-old man shouldn't be eating. But, you know, I do it all in moderation and just try to, um, you know, squeeze some joy out of my day. But, uh, sure. Work yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, also, the exercise is primarily for meditation. Uh, let me ask you about your political development. Channing was asking mm -hmm. this question. Prison is, a, is often a university of revolution, and there's a lot of brilliant prisoners in there, a lot of books, a lot of intellectual life. What was your development like, even into the present? Who are some of the political thinkers who have shaped your philosophy and your outlook? Well, George Jackson, as I mentioned, um, had a big impact on me. Um, Angela Davis, of course, Masada um, Shakur. Definitely, yeah. um, Malcolm X, you know, Ruben Herbert King Carter, um, Tom Tomsky, um, I, I Stout Lynn, um, a historian here in Ohio who recently passed away, 
came into yeah. my life in around 1996 or so, and he was uh, a real big part of my political maturation. He the one who kind of talked to me about working class because he was involved with the unions and the work that, you know, to keep the mills and factories open and whatnot. And he, you know, the one who really kind of taught me about uh, free market capitalism, about uh, the industrialization and how that coincides with mass incarceration. So I was able to, to you know, professors, historic, his historians to kind of make those links and to kind of, you know, uh, 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 find the trajectory of that uh, development, you know, because you know, mass incarceration didn't happen in the vacuum. This is an effect of something, you know, but you don't know that if you've been labeled a criminal and, uh, um, and been, you know, housed in one of these places, you don't really know the history because everything is so immediate and urgent inside of here. And so one of the side effects of being put in solitary confinement is that I have the time without having the, you know, because when you're in population, it's difficult to kind of study because you have to work. You, they force you to work. And, and it's just rife with all these gangs and whatnot, and you have to worry about protecting yourself. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that prisons are very, very violent places. Yeah. You know, and a lot of your energy is, is spent on trying to just protect yourself. The solitary confinement is not like a benefit. It, it it has challenges that doesn't right. represent in population, you know, um, sensory deprivation and all those things. But, you know, I turned my room, my cell, into a a, 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 a classroom, basically, filled it with books <laughs> instead of pain. And I've read extensively, you know, from people who have been in similar situations, Primo Levy, uh, Victor Franco, you know, people who were in the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust and concentration camps and whatnot. And so all those books are here. All those people are here with me. I'm not like in this there by myself alone. I have friends who are alive and friends who are dead, James Baldwin, Richard White. So all these people have contributed to my, uh, uh, my education. Yeah. Yeah. In 1965, I was at the, uh, SDS March on Washington. And I heard uh, Robert Moses say that we have to link the war in Vietnam with uh, segregation in Mississippi and uh, mass bombing in Vietnam. And Storm Lin said that we have to put our bodies on the line. You know, we have to make a physical sacrifice. So I know him back from 65 and I know Alice. So you're lucky and they're lucky. And the role of history, you know, see their lives, they don't see it in a broader historical context. So I can, I'm sure that your yeah. cell looks like a, a library. Yeah, it definitely does. You know, it definitely does. And um, yeah, Dalton, man, he lived right here in Youngstown and now is Ohio. So he was able to come to the prison on a fairly regular basis. And, you know, we were extremely close for the quarter of a century that we even did in my life. They, you know, and um, I, you know, spoke at his funeral uh, a month or so ago. And, um, yeah, yeah, so his, his presence in my life will definitely be missed. Alice was here visiting me about a month ago, two, week, you know, two three weeks ago. And, um, you know, she and I, you know, uh, commiserated on uh, contributions that Stoughton uh, made. Not just to my life, but to everybody's life um, um, that was um, that he touched. You know, so just lucky, man. I was lucky, Eric. Not just in having Stout Land in my life, but most of my friends. Um, ironically, I mean, I'm a high school dropout. 
stuff out of high school in the 10th grade, but most of my friends are college professors, um, you know, uh, professional musicians, just, you know, people who have achieved themselves in one manner or another. And, and, and you know, these are the people who make up my, uh, my army, um, you know. Well, we have, uh, Keith, we have a bookstore in Los Angeles called uh, Strategy and Solve Books. And we say that, What's that again? it's called Strategy and Soul Books. It's on the corner of mm -hmm. King and Crenshaw in South Central mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And yeah. we have this thing that I, I'm the main organizer of the books. So it's called The 100 Most Important Books that Any Organizer Must Read in a Lifetime. At least we give people a lifetime. So we're going to add mm -hmm. Condemned. I already ordered some. And Amy's sending some. So we're going to have a section mm -hmm. of your book and your work in, the, in our bookstore, Keith. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much. You know, this book was just recently released in Spanish um, about a week or so ago. Um, I think it'll be translated in French in the next month and then in Germany. Um, and so, yeah, you know, George Jackson, he, you know, in his book, Solid, uh, Solid Dad Brother, he, he, he is a line in there. He said, you know, before this is over with, the whole world is going to know about me. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, that, you know, they wouldn't just, you know, kill him in uh, that corner or somewhere that, you know, the and we're still talking about those acting. And it's not that I have that as an aspiration, but um, he inspired me, you know, to think outside of this little room that I'm in. You know, um, we were in Berlin um, in November. We won the, um, the Innovation Award. Um, spoke to in front of all these uh, um, um, people who are engaged in trying to abolish the death penalty worldwide. And so... And we were able to kind of share the music that we did on the free first album. And um, not long after that, my name in the campaign was scribed on the, the Berlin Ball. You know, and um, not to say that wow. I stayed there because people came over, you know, these things. But for a moment, um, you know, my name, it may be still there, but, you know, you know, I have pictures of it and everything. So, you know, George Jackson is with me when I, you know, stop and, you know, take and, you know, George Jackson, man, he was prison, as you know, for, you know, apparently stealing $75 a game a year to life. For doing, again, like you, for doing nothing. So I, I'm interested in reading your book because, I mean, the thing about Soledad, brother, is it's, it's mainly letters, right, to his mother, to his friends. Yeah. And it's beautiful mm -hmm. literature. You know, I mean, you read it. Yeah. And... Uh, I can't wait to read your writing is the point because after you do the reading and I heard you do spoken word and I tell a lot of the young people we did spoken word you didn't invent spoken word if you listen to Malcolm X uh, everybody in the civil rights movement learned spoken word by speaking so I'm interested in reading yeah. your writing I'm interested in hearing your your spoken word yeah yeah but George Jefferson, he was an influence, a big influence. Um, Richard Wright, especially, um, was a big influence. Um, his story, Black Boy, yes. and son, but Black Boy, his autobiography. Um, I read that book every day, every morning when I was um, uh, first 
sentence of death and I didn't really have a television radio or any of those distractions. And so I read that book, not, not just as a, I read it as I read the story first and I went back and started over. I read it probably, I don't know how many times I've read that book, probably 10 or so times in my life. And I read it, you know, still with, with high school students, just read it recently with a group of high school students here in Youngstown. But I was paying attention to, the punctuation, the syntax, how he formed the synthesis and how he um, selected the different experiences in his life to bring home a certain point and whatnot. And um, so Richard Wright, especially James Baldwin too, you know, was just huge in um, my life and mental um, maturity. Um, And so writing is just an extension of who you are where you are, you know, it's difficult because you can never, you know, get close to what you really truly want to say. I guess the best writers, Toni Morrison, people like her, James Baldwin, um, you know, they came close, you know, Martin Luther King was a terrific writer as well. And I have all this, his work here with me as well. And so, yeah, I'm in good stead um, in terms of being able to, uh, um, um, draw inspiration you know um writing writing is really a torturous process for me uh because i don't have like the structure the foundation that one might receive from a university you know but like james like 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 uh um, george jackson you know i taught myself how to write here in this little cell and it's not really writing so much as it is fighting i'm not really um 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 trying to become a literary um person um, I'm trying to 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 express my um, existence to say Keith Lamar came through here, you know, and so that book that you know was so difficult to write. You have one minute remaining. I'm still here. Um, and hey, Keith, but, you're uh, on a roll. You're you're doing great. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. You know, Keith, we, uh, Channing put some things in the chat. You wrote, is that correct? It's not so much writing so much as it is fighting. I'm writing to express my resistance and perhaps your existence. Is, is that right? Yeah, my right. existence, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about legacy yeah, either way? I mean, legacy, you know, Stout and I spoke a lot about that. Um, Legacy is something that will happen whether you are conscious of it or not. You are leaving leaving a legacy behind. You know, a lot of those people in the civil rights movement, you know, we talk about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, so on and so forth. But it was thousands, millions of nameless, faceless people whose name we don't know, we'll never know. Right. Yeah, those people by being there have a legacy. You know, their family knew who they who they were and what they were doing. And so I'm I'm aware of um what I am creating, what I will ultimately leave behind. And um I'm conscious of, you know, trying to inject as much righteousness into my walk as I possibly can. Um, I did a lot of things, especially when I was younger, that required the forgiveness of others. 
um, in ignorance, you know, I sold drug, drugs in my community. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to create Native Sons and go back and help the young, you know, young uh, people who were on the same trajectory as I was when I was 12, 13 years old is an acknowledgement of, you know, the, 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 the harm I've caused, you know, because that's also a part of your legacy. Right. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I Googled my name, it was basically all bad. Keith Lamar is a scumbag. But that, of course, was being written by people who were trying to kill me. Right. And it wasn't, and, and they had me in prison um, for allegedly killing a, a, a woman. I'm in prison for murder. I pled guilty. I acknowledge, you know, the wrong that happened my, in, my, in, my, in my situation, in my life. But I didn't, I didn't kill a woman. Right. And, you know, the reason why they made that mistake, quote unquote, is that, you know, when people Google your name, that they will turn off from your situation because you were in prison for killing the child or killing a female, you know, and, and it, it was it's subtle, but it's really, really impactful in terms of how people engage with your story. And so we fought to get them to change that, to get the correct um, uh, uh, crimes for which I was uh, uh, initially convicted. Absurd as that may sound. You know, because I accept responsibility for what I've done, right and wrong, in my life. But you have to, you know, tell the truth. You know, um, you know, come correct. You know, um, and you have to fight for that. But you know, over these past um, ten, fifteen years or so, we've overwhelmed that narrative. And so, when you look at my name now, you see all the things that we've been doing. That you know, that I've been doing with the help of you know my friends and supporters. You have to go dig real deep to find something, you know, that these people, the state has, you know, negative to say about me. And that's my legacy. Not what they say, because, you know, I tell young people that you, you might not be writing your story, but somebody is writing it and they just call it a biography. And somebody's writing your story, whether you, you, whether you are conscious of it or not. Like, these things that you are doing now are being compiled. And it might not seem like anything because you're a child. But these things, you know, when they was trying to get me to cop out to uh, crime stemming out of the 1993 prison uprising, they went back to when I was 13 years old and brought up the fact that I tried to steal some blue jeans out of J.C. Penney. You know, <laughs> so I was 13, you know, right. And so, you know, these, these things really, really really, really matter, you know, and that's what I think the, the, the childhood is about is you from the ghettos, you know, you racking up this thing that would, you know, um, be used against you at some future date. And so you have to really, really be careful if you are a black person, particularly if you are a black male navigating the inner cities of this uh, capitalist country. Yeah. So you know, talk about all those things, you know, those things are very, very important to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Chief, of course, we do work in L.A. We finally got the school board to get rid of the so-called crime of uh, willful defiance, which was nothing more mm -hmm. than black boys, mainly being black boys, you know, mm -hmm. singing, dancing, jumping up, right. being loud. When a teacher said something to you, uh, talking back, that's it. And they would... Mm -hmm. expel them from school for so-called willful defiance. And, of course, when it's a white mm -hmm. kid, they say boys will be boys, right? Yeah. And there's, there's an appreciation. Yeah. Look, when I was a kid, I shoplifted. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, why would you do a thing like that? You should be ashamed of yourself. 
That's it. Because I was white. Yeah. So you get a J.C. Penny when you're 13. They're already trying to hang mm-hmm. the the first step in criminalizing you before you even did anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, um, uh, Eric. You know, I grew up in this little small community called the Village. It was, you know, uh, people who were part of the Great Migration trying to come north to get jobs in the mills and factories. Right. And it was a, a community that comprised 100 houses. People owned their houses. My grandfather paid $12,000 for his little house, and that was the, the homestead for my family. And this, you know, was real dignified community, you know, working-class community. People worked hard. Um, they were, you know, loyal, and, you know, I can go into people's houses at dinner time and eat dinner and so on and so forth. But we moved away from there, and I, you know, came into um, the inner city, and, you know, I was about 10 years old. I went to school, and, man, those kids let me have it, man. You're the most ugliest person on the planet, you know, according to them. My hair was nappy. My clothes was dirty. They gave me – I still have a complex about it. You know, I'm talking about traumatized me, man. And, you know, and we just, we were poor. So we couldn't afford all those name brands. But see, that's the, the trick that this country play on you. They give you this image on what value is. And, 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 but so everybody's is called to reach for these little trinkets that, you know, they, that, that this society hold out. Uh, but everybody aren't obviously on the same playing field where you're not supposed to you know, achieve these things, to acquire these things. And, you know, so I be, it became a thief because feeling like a piece of was all had already been established. You know, one of the lessons that I learned coming out of my childhood that what you had was more important than who you were. Right. Who you are. I had a Mercedes Benz, I had a Rolex watch, I had all those things, but I was still unhappy. So when I came to prison and I met some guys who mentored me, who kind of gave me to understand, you know, where I went wrong, I, I can't realize I was in the prison before I even came to prison. Right. You know, my self-concept was deeply distorted by this whole materialistic way of navigating with, with life. And so, you know, that was one of the first things I had to really, really correct. But I'm still struggle with that. That 12 year old boy is still alive in me, you know. And even as I'm trying to do this work, even as I'm trying to focus on my legacy, he's still trying to prove that he has value. You know, it's just something that I have to be conscious of as I find my way forward. Yeah. You're listening to the wonderful Keith Lamar, who's more alive inside the bars than most people are outside and much more alive than the people who put them behind bars, the liars and the cheaters and the cops and the screws and the white settler state. Prisoners, as you know, are very philosophical. I mean, I learned yoga in prison. I learned meditation Mm -hmm. in prison. You know what I'm saying? That we did yoga together. I never knew. We fasted. We we became vegetarians. Mm -hmm. So many of the things, and these were my mainly black brothers, who were very good to me, who were looked mm-hmm. out for me, by the way. Um, yeah. so I don't want to glorify prison, but people don't realize the high level of philosophical and ethical life that prisoners are trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, um, Eric. Um, a lot of people 
we know one was sitting in, in junior high school, elementary school, saying, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a criminal. I want to be a convict. I want to spend three decades in prison. Like, this is nobody's <laughs> dream. So a lot of guys are really, really focused on trying to figure out where things went wrong. I mean, that's one of the things when I came here, I gravitated towards these people who were engaged in that work. Um, these guys were, were my first, like, psychiatrists, people right. who try to help me heal some of the, the mental, the psychic harm, trauma that my childhood um, created in me. And so, you know, I'm, these guys, you know, kind of saved me. And I'm not happy that I spent 34 years in prison. No. But I was on a visit yesterday with one of my childhood friends, um, and I was telling him the same thing. You know, and what you were saying about, you know, people on the street being not as developed as someone who has been engaged in uh, cultivating themselves as, as, I, as I have for the past 30 years. And, you know, that's true. Some of the people that I've grown, grown up with, they come visit me here and there, and I'm shocked sometimes and sad that they are still standing in the exact same place they were 30 years ago. I mean, I don't judge them for that. I, I understand. But when I think about my own life and I have to put it on the scale, you know, because I was shocked on the case that, that initially brought me to prison. I crawled into this, you know, pissy hallway in the projects where I lived and I lost so much blood. I passed out. Right. My brother who was with me at the time called the ambulance and I woke up in the hospital. But for all intents and purposes, I died right there as an 18 year old. You know, so I'm, don't sit here thinking like, damn, woe is me, because really technically my life could have ended then. And so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about like, damn, what would have happened to me had I remained on that side of reality, the person that I was. I was laughing with Amy earlier because, you know, they offered me a deal. And I said, Amy, you know, in a parallel uh, world that Keith Lamar, who took the deal, I wonder how he's doing. I wonder what kind of person he is right now. And we laugh because, you know, that's, that's a, um, a, a made-up thing. Had I taken the easy way out in my life, I would be a totally different person than I am now. My life is hard. It continues to be the case. But I'm glad I had the strength and presence of mind to say yes to my life as opposed to being swindled into taking this deal to forfeit my opportunity to achieve myself. And so... It's a hell of a journey, man. I, I really, really um, um, respected, yeah, what experience has taught me, yeah. Well, I can obviously just getting to know you, Keith, and I want to get to know you better if you would. You're a deeply introspective person. I always tell people as organizers, do, do you have the guts to look in the mirror you know, I look in the mirror every day. I don't like, a lot of times, I don't like what I see. But that's my journey. I like a lot. I don't like a lot. But every day I'm working on the things that I don't like about myself or the things that I see I do over and over again. And I go back into my soul and say, where, where is this coming from? And I'm doing yeah, some yeah. good work to go down there and find it and not... Sometimes I want to beat it up, but I, I have found that loving it often works better. Yeah, yeah, Eric. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way, man. Um, it's patterns, and these patterns persist no matter how, you know, far away we, 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 how far we move away from them. 
like um, I mean, we we created this thing, this construct called time, to you know give us a sense of movement. But certain parts of ourselves is, is still standing in 1969, 1975. These pivotal <laughs> moments where we were imprinted right. with these things about who we are. This is who you are, Eric. And, and, and you know, we had those things. You know, those things are you know literally set in stone. I know who I am. I know where I've been, what I've done, things I've seen. And a lot of it is not good, but there's a scale, though. And it's not like a blindfold with the Lady of Justice. I don't understand that, but I'm looking <laughs> at it squarely. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it as squarely as I can, and I'm trying to live up to my potential every day. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. But thankfully, I wake up the next day and I get 24 more hours to try to get it right. And I'm trying. That's the only thing that you could really do. You constantly trying to overcome the form of self, man, it's that we all as human beings. Yeah. Keith, as somebody who's just meeting you, yeah, and, and I did yeah. want to say again for Amy that I, I first met you through Amy, who I spent about two or three hours, mm. you know, that I've been on your website. I watched the video, and you're going to have to tell me, who's that great woman who did the poem at the end of your documentary? That's a hell of a poem. Oh, that's a hell of a poem. That's a young sister here in Youngstown. I don't even recall her name at the time, man, but she's awesome, man. She, um, Amy knows who she is. She, who she is. I think Amy's yeah. the one who... That's Eartha um, Terrell. Yeah, Eartha Terrell. Yeah, Eartha Terrell. Yeah. She is Eartha. awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing, Keith, is that the show is me and you talking and other people. Okay, yeah. You know I mean, well, it's like, oh, it's, cool. it's just oh, yeah, you and yeah. me could be just sitting in your cell talking and we record it and that's the yeah. show. Give people a visual. You know, sitting in this little closet um, on the toilet by the door, you know, trying to, you know, keep a strong um, connection to the Wi-Fi signal here, you know. This is something new here in prisons. You know, all these corporations have flooded into these places to exploit poor people. We have uh, Wi-Fi, um, emails, and so on and so forth, you know, but these things come at great expense, and they very seldom have ever actually worked the way that they are um, supposed to work, you know, but it's here. The only thing that works here, Eric, is that cash register. It works efficiently. So that's where all the professionals work. You know, everything falls through the cracks. But not the money, man. They real efficient on getting that money off the books, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, our, our joke was, you know, when you when you got out and you start thinking you're going to buy everything but cigarettes. Back then, you could buy as many packs of cigarettes as you wanted, right? Yeah, that was currency back then. Yeah. Right. Definitely, man. But, you know, this is somewhat different um, now. You know, everything is electronic, man. And, you know, but, you know, not, not allowing cigarettes into the prison has created a black market. And so, you know, a pack of cigarettes might go for $50 in here. It's, you know, real expensive, you know. And so guys don't even sell drugs. They just get, to, you know, tobacco in, you know, quarter <laughs> pounds, pounds of tobacco. You know, that's the currency nowadays. So, you know, your, 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 your analogy still holds true. You know, cigarettes are real still, you know, but it's a crime now. Because, right. you know, they've uh, outlawed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Keith, listen, 
What's your last words to people? Uh, and then, Amy, can you come on also with the information about all the different ways they can reach you? And Because listeners, you know, me and Channing Martinez, we do this show, and we call it uh, organizer-sponsored radio, not listener-sponsored radio. You understand now, if you can't listen to Keith Lamar and think he's entertainment, he's an obligation. You know, in the good sense of that, you are obligated to do something to help his life as he's spending his life trying to make your life better. So we're going to come into all the different ways you can help. But before we get to that, Keith, what's your last set of words and thoughts? I mean, you know, I'm someone who lives every day with the awareness of my mortality. I'm on death row. I was speaking to one of my young friends, a young um, lady, 17 years old, the other day, and I was tell, I told her, I said, you know, when you were born into this world and discovered that people flew across the sky, had wings and flew across the sky, you would accept that, and you would wait patiently for your wings and for your lessons on flying. And by the time you were 12 years old, you would be flying, and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an amazing thing. It's only amazing because you can't do it. Huh. You know, dinosaurs are only amazing because they are no longer here. And one day we'll no longer be here. And maybe then somebody will say you are amazing. But the fact of the matter, you know, as I pointed out to this young woman, is that you flew here to see me. And yet the only thing that you recall in your journey is the long lines and the frustrations and all these things. You know, one of my favorite poets, mystics, Khalil Gibran, said, if you keep your heart in wonder, of the daily miracles in your life, then your pain would seem no less wondrous than your joy. But I just think that people need to bring, find a way to, 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 to be inspired, to be encouraged, because we are only here for a short period of time. You know, we're walking through this mysterious world, man. That's over, it's billions of years old over 4 billion years old. We are right now in on that planet where dinosaurs once roamed. You know, the ancient Egyptians were here, you know, and we are here now. And you don't have to do something where the whole world is going to know about it. But just walk with the awareness that your life is magical. The fact that you are here, that you are breathing, that you are living in 2023. You know, all these people passed away during the pandemic, you know, millions of people. But you didn't. You are still here. We are still here. And that's really, really important. And, you know, we still had the opportunity to, 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 to stop and think about how magical it is to be alive. Man. You know, that's something that I try to uh, uh, remind myself of every day and not just focus on the pain, but focus on the daily miracles. You know, um, and, and that helps, man. That helps a great deal. And so that's what I want to, you know, kind of leave people with. You know, don't forget that, uh, you know, our time here is limited. But, the, you know, we are walking through uh, a place, you know, that is truly, truly magical. Well, Keith, that was very beautiful. And I'm sure Khalil Gibran would be very proud of you. Um, I don't want to interrupt you anymore because I want to make sure you got the last words in. So you've been listening to Voices from the Frontline to a national movement-building show. It's 8 a.m., wake up and smell the coffee. And the amazing voice and mind of Keith Lamar, 
for those of you who want to really get serious about death penalty fights and prisoners' fights, you can work with the Strategy Center, info at thestrategycenter.org. And I'm going to ask Amy Gordea, why don't you tell us all the different ways we can help Keith and the movement that you're, you're doing? The first thing uh, folks can do is go to keithlamar.org and learn about him and get, get, a, get an idea of all of the things he's involved in. One of the things I'd ask everyone to do is to scroll to the bottom of any page and add their name to the email database so we can stay in touch. We're sending out monthly newsletters um, as we fight these last months up in lead up to the um, proposed execution date as we're steering this thing around and turning it away from that outcome. And um, so that's one way we can stay in touch. There's a, a petition that we would love for people to not just sign it, but also to send it out into their networks because it only takes one little spark for that to go viral. And the more people we have on it, the more other folks with influence will um, pay attention and, and want to see what, what is happening here. So it's really important. Um, we, we are really deeply involved in fundraising right now because Keith desperately needs research in his legal defense. Uh, we just recently learned we have access to the database of evidence now and um, to compel the courts to to uh, give him a retrial, we have to be able to com convince them of all the things that were withheld and we need to be able to afford that support to go in there and find all of that evidence now. So hey, we're Amy, in a real, real Amy, critical period. Mm -hmm. Amy, uh, you have a lawyer who's going to help, but this is gonna cost lots of money. If people mm -hmm. want to contribute, how do they specifically contribute the money? It's very important to, to let them mm -hmm. know. At, um, okay, if they go to keithlamar.org slash donate, there are many uh, easy ways. We can, you can give by credit card. You can do it through um, Cash App, Venmo, uh, PayPal. It has a mailing address. Um, and we are also a 501c3 organization, so we're a nonprofit. Um, and anybody who wishes to have um, make a sizable contribution and get a, a letter from us. We're happy to provide that. Um, so that's that's something. So the petition, donation, getting uh, uh, themselves added to the email you list. You have one minute remaining. Getting themselves on our email distribution list. They can order condemned on, our, on the website or go to keithlamar.org slash condemned. Um, and then adding us to social media, we're on, uh, you know, following us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Justice for Keith Lamar and Twitter at Free Keith Lamar. It's been amazing. Uh, we're going to do all those things, Amy, and we'll be in touch with you. Please do as much as you can. And Keith and Amy, it's wonderful to work with you. I can't wait to our next conversation. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. You too, brother. We got 99 problems. Why revolutions ain't one? And revolutions ain't one with passive-aggressive slave mentalities that would rather kill the soul than the body. 
Ain't nobody handing out subsidies for freedom, so lucky for y'all, I'll pay with my life. Matter of fact, tell them to hang my corpse so high that the next generation sees stars of my courage in the sky I live. Like I got black gods and goddesses on my side with Nat Turner and Marcus Garvey in these bloodlines. Who's to blame? For our neighborhood's demise, if we refuse to get up and fight, we move faster. But Jay-Z, 16 bars, when 16 of our own brothers are encaged behind 16 bars. Mass incarceration is just the reincarnation of chattel slavery, but we the new slaves. And new slaves love new chains and pushing new whips that leave tread marks on the membrane. It's a shame how good and how bad it feels to be a and this country got so many ills, but it's illegal for a nigga to feel. And this country, so we don't shed tears when bright futures get immaterialed. And this country, how much of our blood needs to spill? And this country, so I'm looking for soldiers, cause ain't no middle ground on this war field. And this country, and I know you're looking at me wondering like, Still got dreams, like how my aspirations ain't vanished into thin air with the dope you unveiled in my neighborhoods. But I want you to hear me and hear me clearly when I say yes, I'm still dreaming. And even as I watch former kings and queens dance on my corner for green while street entrepreneurs slang them things to thrive in your diabolical trickle-down system where insane is sane for survival. My pulse pumps prosperity, peace, war, and revolution. You are now watching the evolution of a surprise. Being a queen, hailing from the crevices, cricks, and crevices of ancient comedic hieroglyphics, an ordained orator. And my words are expensive if you're lucky. I may let you bid on my memories if you're lucky. I may place a piece of mind on sale. No wonder I've always been a lover of language. This body of mine ever so gently meandering through melodic rhythms of diction that humdrum on the spirits of the restless, a heretic for the easily forgettable with poetic prophecies that lie in the build up of phonetics. If you were looking for me, my writing has always been on the wall. What an amazing conversation, by the way. What a wonderful brother. But we're going to go out with Nina Simone. All right, he's out. Thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Frontlines, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. As you know, Voices is an organizer-sponsored, not listener, and not passive-sponsored radio show. And now that we have woken you up, that means we need your help. Keith Lamar is scheduled to be wrongfully murdered by the state of Ohio on November 16, 2023, unless if we stop it. Right now, Keith has especially asked for financial help. And you can learn more about that at keithlamar.org. Keith and Amy have just begun sending out newsletters monthly to keep us up to date on new ways we can help and updates on all the work Keith is doing. You can visit keithlamar.org to sign up for their newsletter and sign the petition. As always, you can find this show on our website and on your favorite podcasting site to send to everyone you know. All links from this show will be posted on voicesfromthefrontlines.com. We need your help to make sure this reaches millions of people. Please go on right now to subscribe to our newsletter and share this with 10 of your friends. With that, we'll see you next week on Voices from the Front Lions. Wake up and smell the revolution. Little darling, the smile.
another way to support KPFK? By donating your vehicle, you're supporting the programming you value. Donating your vehicle is quick and easy. You can always pledge your support at kpfk.org. You appreciate KPFK and we appreciate you.